The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Greetings to you from the 40 pastors in Wisconsin that I was ministering to last weekend. As many of you know, for the last seven years, I've gone up two to three times a year to minister to just a high number of under-resourced brothers who are serving faithfully in churches, uh, many of them with zero theological training apart what I've been giving over the last seven years. Some of them have never graduated from high school. They're pastoring uh, flocks from 15 to 150, and uh, this last weekend was the fall retreat, and it was such a sweet, sweet time from the Lord, such a kindness. I just love these brothers so dearly, and I care very much about the outcome of their faith and the faith of their flocks. So praise the Lord for um, the open door in Wisconsin. Please open your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah. Several weeks back, we looked at the superscription to the Savior's summons to satisfaction. Pardon? Ah, the sheet. Yes. I do have blank paper up here. I... I, I met, if you would like a piece of blank paper to take notes, it's available. Um, so I, I even met with the, I, I emailed with the guy who's in charge, Benjamin Carlson, who's in charge of all printing on the North Campus, and he thought for certain I knew what I was doing when we last communicated, and it was apparent this morning I didn't get it. So um, anyway, if... I can PDF, send you a PDF of the handout later, uh, but right now you have blank sheets if you want to take notes. So whoever would like a blank piece of paper, um, I'm sorry about that. So we covered the superscription to the Savior Summons to Satisfaction. That's the title of the book in 1-1. Then we've covered the setting. Over the three weeks, we, we looked at Chapter 1, verses 2 through 18, the setting for the Savior summons to satisfaction. And now today we come to the body of the book, the beginning of the body, the essence of the Savior's summons to satisfaction. And it has two parts. Seek the Lord together to avoid punishment. Seek the Lord, but do it together in order to avoid punishment. And then the climax of the book, Wait on the Lord in order to enjoy satisfaction. So today, we are going to be looking at chapter 2, verse 1, and we're going to get to verse 4, Lord willing. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. To that end, pray with me. Father, there are different people in this room. There are those who are hungry for you, who are humbled before you, 
who are pursuing your ways. And this group needs to seek you more. But there are also those who are desireless in rebellion, running hard. And I pray that you would convict and humble that everyone in here might in unity run faster, united in the same direction for the glory of Christ, for the expansion of His kingdom. Make us senders, equippers, and if you would see fit to raise up even more in this room as goers, let it be. For the fame of your name I pray. Amen. Zephaniah chapter 2, 1 through chapter 3, verse 7. Comes in two parts. There's a charge for the remnant of Judah to gather together before the Lord. That's the first imperative. We see it in Zephaniah 2, verse 1. Gather together. Yes, gather. There it is. And then in chapter 2, verse 3, we get the next three imperatives. So we've got five imperatives, command forms that are all jumbled together right here at the beginning of chapter 2, setting us off in stage one of the summons to satisfaction. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Let's read the text together. Zephaniah chapter 2, and because it's all one unit, I'm going to put it all together. Zephaniah 2, 1 through 3, 7. Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes like chaff. That's the day of the Lord. Before the day passes like chaff. Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek righteousness Seek the Lord, all you humble the land who do His just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. For Gaza shall be deserted and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures, with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God shall be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites. How they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore... As I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall possess them and the survivors of my nation shall plunder and then possess them. What verse am I on? 
Thank you. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place, all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushite, shall be slain by my sword, and he will stretch his hand out against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herd shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her will hiss and shake his fist. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Every dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate, without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me, you will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Gather. Gather together, it says in 2.1. You shameless nation. Let's look at the verse text together. The need to gather. Who's supposed to gather? It stresses it twice. Who's supposed to gather? Just read your Bible. (laughs) Who is it? Shameless nation. So we're addressing part of the group that was addressed in chapter 1. What did we learn about that group? So those who are here, just scan, or if you weren't here, you can scan too. Zephaniah 1, 2 through 18. Look at verses 4 and 5, 4 through 6. What do you learn about this shameless nation that Zephaniah is a part of? What do you learn about them? Idolaters, okay. They favor Baal. What else? Pardon? They're not supposed to be like that. Judah is supposed to be the people of God. Jerusalem at its center where the presence of God resides. God is supposed to be emanating out of them, His presence, so that everyone around would see Him and see a difference and be drawn in. It's not the way it is. Rather, there's a remnant of Baal. Who is Baal? A sky god, fertility god of the Canaanites. So, weren't they supposed to be addressed way back in the days of Joshua? Yeah, they they were, but they weren't. 
So, so there's this high level of influence, of foreign influence in the midst. And the problem isn't foreigners per se, it's that those foreigners carry with them all these false worldviews. No true surrender to the Lord, who is the Lord of all things, Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth. No sur- ultimate surrender. Look at verse 5. They bow down on the roost of the host of the heaven. They bow down and swear to the Lord. They make promises to Him, but their ultimate allegiance is higher. They have a different king. They swear by their king. Whatever it may be, there's something else guiding them, something else motivating them, some other higher authority than Yahweh. They are duplicate. Du- yes. Exactly. What else do we learn about this people? Verse 6. They're prayerless. I've said that this is a book, okay, it's a book about war, the day of the Lord. So, but, but ultimately this book is designed to help people be ready for when the war comes. Zephaniah is like, like, a preacher who comes in, a herald, before the great king's day arrives. So he's warning them. He's, he's giving the terms of peace. And he's readying them for the war. Whose side are you going to be on? But, but all he's doing is taking them into basic training. Basic training for battle. When God comes, what are the basics I need to know? Well, you need to be on his side. And that means you need to be a prayerful, word-filled people. But that's not what we've got. They do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. What else do we look? Do we find? Look at verses eight and nine. How high up? How far wide has this badness gone? Pardon? We've got the king's sons who are all messed up. And where the leadership goes, the people are just going to follow. The very leaders are corrupt. And it's both in the political uh, army sphere, the officials, and the king's sons. And then we've got the what appears to be uh, a religious group who's leaping over the temple threshold and filling what's supposed to be their master's house, namely the temple, with violence and with fraud. What else do we learn about them in verse 12? Complacent. What is it, how does it show its, fa- show its face? What does this practical deism look like? Yeah. So it's not an atheism in the sense of there is no God at all, but there, it is a practical deism that there is no God who cares. He's not going to do good. He's not going to do ill. He's not going to account for my sin. Nor is he going to do me good if I pursue him. So I'll just be complacent, apathetic. I'll live how I will with no fear of threat. And Zephaniah comes in and he says, simply because God's patience has been extended and you haven't experienced judgment yet, for your sin and your rebellion and your running, just because there's been a a very long patience, don't be complacent. Rather, humble yourselves. Because what that long patience is, is mercy. 
You have an opportunity right now to get right with God. He's giving you the chance. That's why he sent a preacher rather than fire first. Now, this word for shameless, I, I honestly, honestly, I'm not certain exactly why the ESV translators went this route. Somebody look, for, look up for me Psalm 84.2. You'll see what this word is. I think it captures them very well, the, the overall group. Psalm 84, verse 2. Who's got it? Yep, read it. My soul longs for the courts of the Lord. That's the word that we're looking at, but it's in its negative form. They don't long. This is a longingless people. And the call is, gather together. Oh, longingless people, stop going in your own directions and unify together and head in the same direction. There's an implication here that unless you're together you're not going to be able to battle sin. This word for gather is not like the other words for gather that we see in the book. There's many, many of them. Um, This is a word that's usually used for gathering straw. And it's often used in negative judgment context for um, gather up those who are going to be burned in the fire. But here it's, it's more positive. It's like bundle yourselves together as the chaff gets blown away. Notice how it's worded here. The contrast, gather together, O desireless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff. So it's going to come, and it's going to go. It's going to be that fast, just here and then gone. The wind is just going to take it. The wind of God is going to take it when judgment day comes. And if you're not bundled up with with others, You'll get blown away too. Question. May I? <laughs> you may. In verse 12, it seems like implied in that is that these who are not committed to, Christ, to, to God and not, you know, they're just wishy washy, whatever. But he says, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. They're living in darkness. I mean, I bet they don't even know that they're living in darkness. Is that a fair understanding of that? Or why do you think the, he will search with lamps? It's. The imagery of darkness is sustained throughout all of the prophets and in the New Testament prophets called apostles. They, they are, uh, the darkness is equated with the day of the Lord. So it's an image of judgment, of punishment, where um, they're being separated from the light. They're moving away from life. And there's, as I've said in, the, in previous weeks, like a decreation. Light comes out of darkness, and now they're going backwards, back into the darkness. But the point is, even as they live in the darkness, and, and, and so it'll come like a thief in the night, it'll be unexpected, that's one element. But the fact that God has a lamp means that you can't run. Remember John chapter 3, right after Jesus says the world's favorite verse, which I noted was very scary, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes, that's the condition, that's the qualification, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That wasn't the ultimate end, but rather in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him, no condemnation. 
But whoever does not believe is already condemned. Because he's not believed in the name of the only Son. Now, hear this. And this is the judgment that the light, namely Jesus, I am the light of the world, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. What happens when evil works come into the light? For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But the light of God on the day of judgment will find everyone. That's what it says. Their goods shall be plundered, their houses laid waste. God will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish every man. He'll come in the night, but remember what Paul says? If you're in him, the day of the Lord will not be darkness for you. It will be light because you're expecting it. So there's, an, there's a sense in which this does appear to be figurative. It doesn't mean that um, God will come at local time in the evening and his coming will be wrapped around a 24-hour period. Let's local time. No, universal time, he'll show up and people are living in darkness whether the sun is shining or not. And God will find every one of them. The question was... Just unpack a little further. Can you unpack a little further this idea of gathering and why it's not individually stated, but what is the corporate element related to this command? Why is that so important? This last Friday was the 20th anniversary homecoming for my graduating class of college. So Friday night, I didn't get to go to Indiana Um, But there was a group of 12 of us, 12 men, who met together for four straight years, one night per week for four years, and prayed for one another, for holiness, and for revival. And seven of us got to be together on Friday night, six of them together in Indiana, and then I came in via Skype. And... And we talked for four hours, sharing each other's story. And as anyone who's gone through this process, seeing, connecting with people that you haven't connected with, there can be great joys and there can be deep, deep sorrows. And one of the men um, is at a place where his church, this is how he worded it, my church is meeting with this other guy. There's two, two of them, a half hour apart. They meet together once a week. But this, this one man has become so deeply wounded and tasted the church's hypocrisy and brokenness that he is no longer um, meeting with anybody, body of believers. And it's not only that, he was very clearly the least joyful of anyone in the group. He was living in a state of increasing discouragement and frustration. And God and the church were the problem. And I don't think, as we're, if if we make it to my takeaways, um, we'll... The New Testament 
stresses both through its one another statements and through its day of the Lord warnings, the absolute imperative of pursuing holiness with others because it's as if we're too weak on our own. We need those around us who can remind us when we forget of the bigness of God, the hope of His promises, the clarity of His commandments. And I think Zephaniah, Yahweh, through Zephaniah, right here at the front end, the very first command in the book, it's, it's, it's so weighty because of that. Gather together. Stop living independently in your apathetic or complacent state, but recognize your need to join with others who in union will surrender their hearts to the living God. It's apparently part of the means of grace for experiencing this potential deliverance that verse 3 stresses at the end. This perhaps, it's a very strange perhaps. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And the... So I, I think that it is Old Testament background to the numerous New Testament stresses that there is no church apart from community. And that community has to be unified around a person. Surrendered to the Lord, as we're going to see in chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. And even here, you're gathering together before the decree takes effect. What's the decree? Anybody? What's the decree? Just read it in context. It's the day of the Lord of chapter 1. Very literally, before the decree is given birth. So think about birth pains as a curse. That, that's the exact verb that's used here. The decree is, it's like it's, it's building, it's building, and all of a sudden, out it will come, and it will be judgment on the world. Before that comes, look at the re- repetition of befores. Before the decree takes effect, and the day passes like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Look at the repetition there. The burning anger of the Lord. The day of the anger of the Lord. That's what's coming. And it, I think there's a sense, you will not make it unless you're standing with someone else. Is that yeah. touch on? I, I'll ponder that further. Um. If nuclear disaster was coming, I wouldn't want to be alone. I would be seeking others that I could partner with, grieve with, pray with. And that's the context. And he wouldn't want you to be alone. That's, and that's so profound. It's very good. Thank you. Not simply the need to gather, but the time. When are you supposed to gather? When are you supposed to bond arms in mutual surrender? When's it supposed to happen? Before. 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 And what is it before? What do you, what do you get from the repetition of the anger statement? Two times. His anger is building. 
It's imminent. What was it? Urgency. Because then it will be too late. It will pass immediately and and feel that. Once that day comes, there is no more repentance. None. But right now there is. Right now is the day of opportunity. The terms of peace are being laid out. The great king has not arrived yet. Feeling the weight of being the enemy of God. In Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God, I don't know if you've ever read it, he talks about how hell is in the heart of every man who is not yet redeemed. Hell is already there. The fires are kindling. It shows its face in sin, in reviling, in bitterness, in lust. But one day those those fires will grow and grow until they consume the person. It's not that you're going to be tossed into hell. It is, that is true. But what's happening is that's the culmination of your ultimate rebellion. All the fires in your soul that are anti-God will all of a sudden well up and consume you. That's why in John chapter 3 it says, those who are not in the light are already condemned. Already. That's their context. Under the wrath of God, an enemy of the living God. And the opportunity is being made here. Gather together before the day of anger actually shows its face. Now there's a shift here. Gather together, O desireless nation... He's talking broadly, nation that isn't desiring of God, longing, hungry. If you have heard the cry, silence, from verse 7, the day of the Lord is at hand. If you've heard that cry and, and found yourself humbled under, to move, to revere this living King, then find others who are on their knees, and gather together. And then he moves immediately into verse 3. And this is the, the, a more dominant command. But you cannot understand it apart from the joining that, is precede, that precedes it. So it's not just gather together in order to avoid punishment. No, seek the Lord together. That's, that's how I framed this whole section. Stage 1, gather. Stage 2, seek Seek the Lord together in order to avoid punishment. All those verses that I just laid out unpack the state and the fate of the rebels of God, both from the world broadly and then at the end, it narrows in on Jerusalem. The state and fate of the rebels, and because their state and fate is real, seek the Lord together. All of that provides a ground, a basis, a reason for why The listeners need to move and act. Look at verse 3 with me. The charge to seek the Lord in righteousness and humility. So the charge is voiced right off the bat in verse 3. Seek the Lord, and then we have this um, unpacking. Notice how it is. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. And then it's like a repetition Seek righteousness. Seek humility. In doing that, you're seeking the Lord. You see that? Seek the Lord. That's the general statement. Then it tells who he's talking to. And it appears to be, in some sense, a distinct group from the previous one, and yet 
they're in the midst of it. He's still talking in the same direction. One people are getting this book, and yet there's the desireless nation, and then that says, there's all you, who, all you humble of the land, who are actually doing as just commands, surrounded by people that don't know or treasure God. If you find yourself there, I'm calling you, seek righteousness, seek humility. So you're already doing the ways of God, seek to do them more. You're already humble, now seek deeper levels of God-dependence. Turn away from self-reliance. That's what we're seeing here. So this explication of the charge. This this language is, is very common. Let's consider humility. Dependence. Somebody read chapter 3, verse 12 for me. What do we learn about this group? Good and loud. But I will leave you in your midst, a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. So after the day of the Lord is comes, I will leave in your midst... A people, humble and lowly. In contrast, what did verse 11 say? Read that one. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your profoundly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. So you've got a contrast here. On that day you shall not be put to shame. On the day when judgment day comes... You who've listened will not be put to shame. You who have gathered will not be put to shame. You who have sought the Lord will not be put to shame. For I will remove from your midst all your proudly exultant ones. Specifically, he's he's changed angles here. He's actually talking to the city. The city Jerusalem. And he's referring to them in the feminine singular. As if Jerusalem is a woman... And he's referring to her. And so when he says, there will, I will remove from your midst all your proudly exultant ones, he's talking to the city, so he's going to take all the proud out of Jerusalem. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, humble and lowly, they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. They'll seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Now who's in Jerusalem? Well, it's not just remnant of Jews, verse 9 tells us in chapter 3, it includes some from beyond the rivers of Cush. They're the ones who've gathered. Nations from every people, tongue, and tribe gathered to the throne of God in Jerusalem. And in that context, all that is left are the humble people. The humble, the God-dependent, What do we know about the proud? God, add a a verb. God, what, the proud? What? Hates? Opposes? Well, how about the humble? If God opposes the proud, He gives grace. Humility Humility is, is tough. It's just tough because it, 
It is the opposite of everything in our being that fights for self-reliance. It's one of my biggest sustained challenges, the opposite of humility, pride. It can show itself in arrogance or it can show itself in despondency. Self-despondency, where I'm still focused too much on myself and failing to see the beauty of the cross and all that's been secured for me in Jesus. Pride. The humble of the land. Somebody read for me Isaiah 11, verse 4. Who will take Isaiah 11? I, I think that everyone, even the remnant, even the, the few that are following God, they're part of, a, as a whole, a desireless or shameless nation. They, they're not bearing shame. They're, they're not hungry. They're not surrendered. And so even people like Zephaniah are, in one sense, part of that group, in that he's, he's in a bigger group called Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem. But in the midst of there, there are only some who will listen to the prophet. So the desireless or shameless nation, will they turn? Only some will turn and be gathered. And that group is the group that I think he's referring to in verse 3. So it's, it's like there's a remnant within the community, but Zephaniah can't pinpoint all of who they are. But he's crying out to them, and some will listen, and some will refuse to listen. The challenge is that for some, this is as real as if somebody said Martians were going to attack the earth. They are so contented, their lives, it's it's sunshine. And if you were to say it's going to be dark five minutes from now, the terror of the living God is going to be upon the planet a high majority would not even flinch. These prophets are speaking to the minority, not to the majority. Most are laughing. One who is likely alive, but not yet influencing, is Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a priest at the temple. That's what he would grow up to be. And then in his Mid-twenties, if I recall rightly, in his mid-twenties, he is captured and taken to Babylon. And he enters into a 40-year ministry among the... And he's called to be a prophet after he is exiled to Babylon. And what we read at the end of chapter 33 is that to him... I mean, is that he, to all those who are around him, he was just like a good entertainer. They call him a singer of love songs. That's all he is. And then it says, they don't realize that a prophet has been in their midst. But when the day of the Lord comes, as indeed it will, then they'll know. It's similar with Zephaniah. So this isn't awakening very many people. But I pray that God's working today in a way that he wasn't working then. Making people feel the seriousness of sin, the beauty of His holiness, the the definitiveness of His zeal of punishment. And 
the reality of how much He owns our lives. No more complacency. So there are humble people who are supposed to become more humble. These humble are defined as they're not living their own way, they're doing God's just commands. That's that's the definition. What does humility look like? Surrender. I'm not the leader, he's the leader. And then seek righteousness, seek humility. Who had Isaiah 11 for me? Scott, please, Isaiah 11.4. And who will take Psalm 37.11 for me? Psalm 37.11. Thank you. Good and loud. Isaiah 11.4. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. This is a picture of the great servant on the fi- when he enters in. The royal servant of Isaiah is the Christ. He is the one we know of as Jesus, and he will come and he'll be for the meek of the earth. The humble, same, same word. He'll be for them, but against the proud. Psalm 37, 11. That's repeated by Jesus in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5. It's the same word. That's that's those who will see life after judgment. The meek. And here the definition of the meek is those who do His just commands. Righteousness is consistently a behavior or character word in Scripture. It's about doing. Usually, it's about doing specifically acts of justice or righteousness on behalf of the broken. What's amazing in Genesis 15.6 is that Abraham is considered righteous when he didn't do anything. He's counted for what he didn't do. He just believed. But he's being counted for someone as someone who had perfectly aligned with God's right order and was working for right order in God's world. That's what Jesus does on our behalf perfectly. Comes to care for the broken, the needy, the hurting. Seek righteousness. But what's amazing is that it doesn't, it, it's like it wants everybody to know that he's, he's talking to a different group here. When Moses calls people in Deuteronomy 16.20, pursue righteousness. Righteousness you shall pursue. Those that he's talking to, he's already defined as stubborn, unbelieving, and rebellious. So if stubborn, unbelieving, and rebellious people start to pursue outward acts, it becomes legalism. It becomes self-made men and women. But here, he says, no, the righteousness is an overflow of a humility that is already aligned with God. See, he's talking to a remnant, and in that context, the pursuit of righteousness and love of neighbor finds a true place. 1 John 3, 7, those who act righteously are righteous. It's evidence. Those who live working for justice, working for the care of the broken... What does it look like in your life this week? Honestly, 
We can say, I'm there. But do you have a face to put with it? A face. Yes, I worked for righteousness this week, and her name was. What did it look like? Somebody read for me Isaiah 1, 21 through 23. This is another depiction of Zephaniah's audience, the opposite of what's being called for. Isaiah 1, 21 through 23. In my own life, I feel like I'm, I'm only starting to understand what it means to seek first what? My kingdom and what? My righteousness. I'm only beginning to learn. This is outward application of true surrender to our King. A God who is King of kings and Lord of lords, who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and the sojourner, and who gives food to the sojourner in his due time. That is our God. And if we are following him in radical love, then we will begin to look like him. We'll begin to enter into the messy world of love. It's going to force selfishness out of the soul because it's much easier to sit than to serve. Much easier to be served. Last night, I'm sitting on the couch... Teresa and the girls were out. They come in, and I had to get up off the couch, take off the blanket, and go open up the door. Can you believe it? I had to serve that way? And what came out was foot-stomping, Frustration. Why did you send them to that door? I had already locked it for the night. Ugh. Deroshi, seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. God's anger is against such selfishness. He hates it when husbands are selfish to their wives. And only want to be served rather than to serve them like Christ serves his bride. He hates that. How desperately I need Jesus. How desperately you need Jesus. And then we step back and say, oh, the world is much bigger than my home. The needs are so vast. Just get a taste of our global partners. The Hertzbergs are back here in town from Senegal. Serving tirelessly 
Joe is out planting trees and discipling young men. And Kara, her radical life with God, what does it look like? It looks like taking care of the kids day in and day out in her home, very little Christian fellowship, Every relationship that she tries to make with a national turns into, I want your money, and lonely, radical. She's at her house, connecting with very few, year after year after year after year, because she's surrendered to the king, humble and seeking righteousness, seeking humility. May God make us more like that. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. These kind of perhapses show up often in the prophets. And yet, it's absolutely certain that there's going to be change, that there is redemption. So what do we do with a perhaps? We already read chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, which said, Hey, city of Jerusalem, know this. Once all the nations are gathered in, at that time, you shall not be put to shame. For I'll remove all of the enemy out of you, and you will flourish like the Garden of Eden flourish. That is so certain, and the prophets aren't even afraid to say that. So why does he say, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord? Why does he say perhaps? Yeah. So, so the statement was, do you, maybe it's that he doesn't want us to take it for granted. To never just act like, I'm in. All is well. If you do, you're all of a sudden going to become the complacent one who thinks that God isn't going to take sin seriously. No, to be ever, ever, ever humble. Never allowing arrogance or self-dependence or, or self-righteousness to rise. Consider your lives. Look in and say, am I taking for granted anything? Am I forgetting that all of this is blood-bought? All, all is grace. Perhaps... Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. To live in that sense of, yes, I know I can trust in God, but, but, I, but I have to always have that, that disposition of awe. And this is about you, not about me. And it's about your mercy and nothing I've gained. Perhaps. I think that's the sense. So, yeah, the humble person is always living in the perhaps. In the sense that, okay... Um, I'm always being reminded of my sin, always being reminded of my desperate need. In um, the baptism class that I've walked through with Janie, and then I walked through with Ruthie, and then this spring I got to take seven weeks and walk through it again with Isaac. How do I know? How do I know that I'm a Christian? Where's my assurance come from? Are you trusting today in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins and the fulfillment of all of his promises? Are you looking outside of yourself to Him? That's how you know I'm in. Today, am I trusting? 
If I'm relying on yesterday's grace and just saying, I'm going to live in sin today, I have no assurance. Assurance comes in a mindful, conscious surrender that He alone is my Savior, not me. Here's Joel chapter 2, 14. Just listen to how it's worded here. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering. Is it possible? Is it possible that sinners could actually be saved? That real repentance could meet true mercy from the living God? Is it possible Somehow we need to let our hearts be living in that kind of hungry status. All the time hungry for more mercy. A deep sense of my neediness. And an absolute confidence in His worth. My neediness is like, is it called a rudder on the bottom of the sailboat? That deep, deep thing? Keel? Thank you. It's like, it's like a keel at the, at the bottom of the sailboat. And that, that needs, we need that to keep us on the course. We have a high sail of unbelievable divine mercy showering at us through Christ. But that keel is what keeps that mercy from not blowing us over and making us more proud. That ever-present, deep-seated reminder, I am needy. I am sinful. That's humility. We need to remind ourselves of that. And And if you find yourself there now, what does it say? Seek it more. Humble of the land, seek humility. Those who are following in God's ways, seek righteousness. And in that context, He will meet us. There's a ground statement made, a because, and it's a little bit strange in verse 4. I'll pick up here next week. trying to figure out how verse 4 relates to this call to seek the Lord together. But here's here's our two statements. Number one, commit to community with other believers. If you could just, if you're taking notes, write these texts down. Commit to community with other believers. These texts, many of them in the new, in, in the book of Hebrews there, it They're right stated in the context of the coming day of the Lord and the absolute need that if you're going on your own, you'll continue to sin. The absolute need for brothers and sisters to surround you, to keep you on target. And the seriousness, Hebrews also stresses, of this day. And then the second, turn from wickedness and seek the Lord, pursuing righteousness and humility. And that's exactly what Jesus says to do. Seek it first. Seek it first. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is yours. And then as you pursue it, there's all these promises that shall be. Do you see that frame? 
The kingdom of heaven is theirs in verse 3. Kingdom of heaven is theirs in verse 10. And then in the middle, for they shall be, for they shall be, for they shall, they shall. The hope of the kingdom and the present reality that I'm already there. Is Jesus your king today? Turn from wickedness and seek the Lord in increasing ways, pursuing righteousness and humility. Let's pray. Father, I'm praying that you would help me, help these men, help these women become increasingly God-dependent. Not just turning away from self, but truly turning toward Jesus, increasingly surrendered and broken, dependent, hungry. And then, Lord, that that humility would turn into radical love of the broken around us. Not just the broken, those that seem to be doing okay. That we'd love them intentionally, working righteousness, all by blood-bought grace. Not in order to, to get on your side, but simply to identify ourselves as we're in. This is, these are those who will be hidden when the day of wrath comes. Move us, Lord, before that day to be the people you've called us to be. And if you would see fit, raise us up for the nations as senders, as equippers, and then, Lord, even some as goers. For the glory of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.